0: Welcome to When Movies Were Good, a laid-back discussion about all your favorite films from the silent era up until 1959. You can hear our channel's content on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, and follow all new updates and events on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please give us a thumbs up or a good review, whatever your favorite podcast channel allows for. It helps to get us in front of more people. And now, on with the show.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to When Movies Were Good. Do you hear the difference? Do you hear my voice? No, I'm not on the telephone. I'm actually here in person with Matt because the lockdown here in Melbourne has been, quote, unquote, partially lifted. Matt, welcome back to the resort studios.
0: Yes, it's so nice (laughs) that our voices are normal again. (laughs) Uh, Wonderful, isn't it?
1: It is. It's lovely to be back here. This is the first time Matt and I have seen each other in quite a while, although we do sort of speak on the phone and text and all the rest of it, so we're always in contact. But um, it's nice to be back in person. It's nice to be here in the resort studios, aka my little flat here in Melbourne, Australia. We are the longest lockdown city in the world. I don't know if we should be celebrating that. Yesterday, uh, Thursday, the 20... What's the date today? Today is the 23rd, so the 20... Second, Friday the 20th was quote unquote Freedom Day, although we still have to wear masks everywhere and retail stores aren't open, but hey, it's a start.
0: Yeah, I'd have preferred free petrol day personally.
1: Yeah, personally. Um, and, you know, our life didn't change. I was at home watching trashy movies thinking about Larry Hagman, and I'm, Matt, what were you doing? Like,
0: I can't remember. <laughs> it was a very forgettable day.
1: It's been, you know, on and off for nine months. We've been in a very. Hard lockdown, so um, it's just sort of a bit unbelievable. We do have a bit more freedom, can go into sort of cafes, restaurants, and stuff now. uh, And hopefully, uh, retail sales will open up in the next couple of weeks. So, thanks for bearing with us. I have a very slow internet connection where I live, so even recording on Skype became hard because uh, we actually recorded one episode a few weeks ago and the whole thing went south and we that's when we started recording over the phone so
0: you got a nice frozen <laughs> shot of our faces
1: we did we did so then we decided to go old school you know 60s 70s and 80s and go back to the old days of the old phone-ins so I had a little bit of a mystique about it
0: yeah we'll uh, just leave it in that description
1: yeah <laughs> <laughs> So welcome uh, to When Movies Were Good, welcome back, thanks for joining us and we are doing a Cary Grant, although there's many Cary Grant doubles that we could do. Uh, We decided on two movies that we could easily watch and two of his very famous movies, we're doing His Girl Friday, 1940, directed by Howard Hawks and then The Great North by Northwest, 1959, directed by one of my favourites and I know Matt's favourite, Sir Alfred Hitchcock.
0: Yeah, I don't think we're ever going to get to do an Alfred Hitchcock episode because by the time we get to it we'll have used all his films for other episodes because his movies are always the best of every other person's.
1: Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly right and he worked with so many greats and um but I think it would be interesting one time because we will invariably cover a lot of his movies just through the various doubles that we do but really you could have a 20 hour podcast on Alfred Hitchcock and not even have scratched 1%. So
0: there is. It's called his interview with François Truffaut.
1: <laughs> and I still need to I still need to watch that and there's also an accompanying book to that, isn't there? So Yes,
0: I've heard the whole thing. Twice. Oh,
1: okay. Awesome. Twice. So that's uh, on my <laughs> some of my uh walks around the neighborhood I might have to start listening to that, but that is a very famous interview and I am well aware of it, I just haven't had the chance, but we will do a dedicated psycho special at one point, but I'm um, just waiting to watch the other psychos that Anthony Perkins made with Matt. So just so he's got a bit of a background about how those films turned out. And remember they did come out in the eighties and nineties. So I think that says everything we need to know on that. But back to Archibald Leach, AKA Mr. Cary Grant, that was his stage name that he used in Hollywood
0: much more catchy.
1: Much more catchy. I don't mind. I mean, I think Archie Leach would have been fine, but, you know, and a lot of these people, you know, you look at somebody like Rock Hudson, et cetera, they're looking to also reinvent themselves and create a new persona as well as change their life direction and career. So, um, yes, it was a suggestion of agents. Yes, it was, you know, this looks better up in light sort of thing, and I get that. But I suppose a lot of these people like Cary Grant were happy to take on the new moniker because essentially it was the start of a new life for them. And um, just briefly, it's always nice to, the thing that connects these films together, just have a small discussion about uh, about that aspect and and Cary Grant is the linkage between these two films. So he was born Archibald Alec Leach, uh, January the 18th, 1904, and he did unfortunately pass away November the 29th, 1986. So he did have a good long life. Uh, he was an English-American actor, obviously was born in Bristol and spent his formative years there in a hard family situation. Uh, he had a, a mother who suffered badly from depression. His father was an alcoholic. Obviously, they were very working-class people. Um, his mother was committed to a mental institution. The young Archie was told that she'd actually died didn't find out till he was in his 30s that his father had actually lied to him and then he re-established contact with her at that point in his life. He was already in the US then but went over to the UK and saw her. So fortunately, young Archie did have a lot of things going for him. He took a trip to the Bristol Hippodrome when he was a young child, fell in love with performing and then sort of dedicated himself to getting into that industry He started off as a, he actually got a scholarship to study, I believe, at a grammar school that helped him uh, a bit more with his artistic talents, eventually uh, dropping out at about the age of 14 and then embarking on his career in in shows. And he used to volunteer at theatres. He would participate in shows, obviously go to the theatre. He started performing in vaudeville productions. Of course, as we know with many British actors of this um, era found his way in the U.S., was touring in a show in the U.S., and then made his way eventually over to Hollywood, that old nugget.
0: Yes, big nugget.
1: The big nugget. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, you know, back then, you know, you went where the work was and if you were good enough, you were hired and you could stay there and work and um, I think it's a bit of a different road for actors now. I think going over to Hollywood now, you have to be on a special sort of artistic visa, you have to bring something to the role that – Nobody else can quite bring to the role or the role was specially written for you or you're already a star where you're from so yes you're an asset to us being in this movie but back then it was yep let's go let's get a contract somewhere and work our way out which is essentially what all of these great classic film stars did. So during his career uh, he did have a long career in terms of when he was working he made a lot of films and then when he stopped working that was the end of it for him obviously he had his first child when he was in his 60s with Diane Cannon which is quite unbelievable but I was reading that some of the things issues he had with women obviously he was married a few times before that Uh, perhaps had to do with the relationship that he had with his mother and also the fact that his older brother died of tuberculosis as well and that affected how his mother treated him too. So the poor guy was probably just a bit all over the place emotionally, but I'm glad in his... um, later life, even as an older parent, he got to his daughter, Jennifer, is absolutely stunning. And it's nice that he did manage to have a child and had a lovely relationship with Diane, I guess, up to a point and then got married again. And he was married to that same lady till he died. So going through, he's got an amazing catalogue of films, you know, The Author Truth, Bringing Up a Baby, Philadelphia Story, Gunga Din, Arsenic and Old Lace, which is a favourite of mine, and then obviously made several films with the great Alfred Hitchcock starting in the 1940s and and going through um, until North by Northwest, which is the second film. So, um, yes, Notorious, North by Northwest, To Catch a Thief. Yeah, definitely a great catalogue of films. And he was one of the stable actors that Hitchcock liked to have in his films.
0: Yeah, he was a... Very easy viewing for everyone around. Uh, everybody, I'm um, just uh, couldn't get enough of him.
1: Yes, yeah, I'm. Uh, I've always liked him, and I just every time I was saying to Matt before we started recording this episode, every time I hear his voice, I just think of Tony Curtis doing Shell Oil Junior in one of my favorite movies. Some like it hot, but um, and it wasn't until, of course, it sounds exactly like him, but it wasn't until Tony Curtis said, "That's Cary Grant who I'm taking." <laughs> who I'm taking off, but he did such a good job of it. So the first film that we're going to discuss is one of everyone's favourites, a really fast-paced um, Howard Hawks film, and Howard Hawks is known for Scarface, Spring up Baby. He's done other films with Cary Grant as well. 1940s, His Girl Friday.
0: Yeah, I've been meaning to see that for years. I was so glad to see it.
1: Yeah, I um, now His Girl Friday actually a more modern film made with one of my favourite actors, Christopher Reeve, Changing Channels. And I remember seeing that film uh, I Need to Watch It Again, I haven't seen it since I was young, a very similar storyline. And, yeah, it was one of the films that was made sort of uh, as uh, His Girl Friday was sort of the precursor of that one. Essentially Burt Reynolds is uh, the Cary Grant role, Kathleen Turner's Rosalind Russell, and um, Christopher Reeve is the, is the uh, other male lead role of the sort of dupe that doesn't understand what's going on between the couple and uh yeah so entertaining film Um, I was happy to see this one too so I guess the the theme of the film is sort of like you know the couple that loves each other but hates each other but loves each other and can't get enough of each other
0: add to that it's the journalism itself sort of takes itself on as a character at least what people's ideal of it should be Mm-hmm. Uh, the high intensity adventure chasing of a good story and uh, creating a thrilling, um, a, a thrilling expose, uh, which I think is a, what a lot of um, people go into journalism uh, hope it's going to be like.
1: Yeah, well, it is a screwball comedy, and when the script um, Howard Hawkes was saying he, it, the script is purposely written, so when you watch the film everyone's kind of interjecting and talking over everyone and everyone sounds like they're recording a narration to like a radio player, a news announcement or something, but that's just how everyone was talking in the film. Everybody spoke like that because they were all journalists and I guess all news people and that's how they spoke.
0: Well, comedy versus drama, you you thrive in certain different dialogue situations. So comedy, when you do have that arced up and ridiculous narration, um, that's when um, you're you're able to get away with it. And it still works now, like in uh, shows like Brooklyn Nine-Nine, there's plenty of uh, sort of uh, wars of words that uh, um, help to arc up the tension and give good comedic release, whereas drama, the tendency has to be, you have to be a lot more not necessarily realistic, you have to follow in the conventions of what people think is realistic and then realise after they paid for their movie ticket and driven home that actually may not work that way.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah, and you're right. I I suppose a a show that we both liked, Frasier, was a bit like that too. That was definitely that sort of hyperball and, you know, I mean, Kelsey Grammer and David Hyde-Pierce were extremely camp in that show. But then you also had their father, John Mahoney, He was playing, you know, the archetypal sort of gruff police officer. Then you had the ditzy sort of English, you know, a lady that helped out in the house. Um, Yeah, so, yeah, you're right. It, It does. And it was highly comical and it was a lot of fun, this film. I didn't know much about it. I thought His Girl Friday, well, when they say His Girl Friday, I suppose they're talking about like a maid or a servant and Rosalind Russell's character in this film was anything but. So I suppose that's sort of a bit of irony there because she was anything but his Girl Friday. So, yeah, as Matt was saying, yeah, essentially the film is about um, Cary Grant's character and he is divorced from his wife, Rosalind Russell. They're both reporters. She's now going to marry some innocent guy from Albany, New York, who works in insurance and... um, she doesn't really want to but she wants a different kind of a lifestyle and then uh, a sort of a sequence of events put into play by Cary Grant's character sort of propels them back together again and it's, uh, yeah, set in the, the journalism world.
0: Yeah, well, I think Rosalind's character did uh, want to be uh, with an insurance man but uh, she just didn't realise that she just couldn't uh, be uh, a wife for him.
1: Right, so this film was adapted from a play, a 1928 play called The Front Page Um, and then there was a film version of that one as well. So, yeah, really interesting. Um, So His Girl Friday is noted for the various sort of comic, you know, there's a lot of slapstick in it, the rapid overlapping dialogue, which was interesting. It sort of was a bit hard to listen to at first, and then as it went on, it went really... It went really well and I guess that was sort of their first foray. I mean you're thinking it's 1940 so the sound mixer of the dialogue and everything (laughs) he would have had, you know, and I suppose that was getting that new technology as well as, as the talkies started, you know, we drifted away from the silent era. I guess every time they made a movie they were upping the stakes with how well they could record the movie
0: yeah well they were um realizing that uh, they didn't have to just photograph people having a conversation as they would from a play they could uh, sort of really um uh, push push the boundaries of uh, where the um because uh, push the boundaries of where a dialogue could be taken in terms of a clash and a uh, confrontation of intentions and i i just really think um the how to write it on a script would be rather awkward because it's kind of like you you almost have to, like, divide the page into two columns and have them yeah. <laughs> saying their lines uh, <laughs> alongside each other.
1: Yeah, it, it was very interesting. So, um, sorry, Ralph Bellamy was the second male lead in this film. Sorry, his name just escaped me for a moment. So with the casting... Um, Initially, obviously, when they sort of changed and did their adaption of the film, originally it was supposed to be two male leads and then they realised it would work a lot better with a male and a female lead and then having their romantic relationship as well. So um, Hawks had wanted Carol Lombard, who we know we discussed her last time because she was um, very tragically Clark Gable's wife. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah. Um, and she unfortunately passed away, but obviously she was making films at this stage long before her death Uh, and, but there were issues getting her and she didn't, she, she was going to be too expensive for them to get to this film. So we have, then he was thinking about perhaps Catherine Hepburn, Claudette Colbert, Ginger Rogers, Irene Dunn, they all turned it down. And then finally they got Rosalind Russell and she was like, oh, thanks. Am I sort of, you know, the leftovers here. But I think Howard Hawks managed to uh, prove to her, "Look, no, you're the right person for this role. And she was, she was great in this film.
0: Yes, I can't get enough of that zebra hat she was wearing. Yeah, uh,
1: everyone was really strong in this film, but she, they did need a strong female. And I'm not saying that the other people suggested. I mean, Catherine Hepburn would have been great and all the rest of it. And unfortunately, we did see her have that sort of, you know, uh, sparring dialogue in the Philadelphia story, which is another great film with her, Cary Grant and James Stewart. Um, one of my favourites, actually.
0: Yeah, I feel like Catherine Hepburn might have been almost sort of too aristocratic for the role. Um, Mm. Rosalind um, uh, Russell uh, was perhaps um, more suited in terms of her, kind of the way she could get more earthy once she got really at the typewriter because I loved how we have that rather good visual symbolism which kind of would be uh, lost on a lot of people today where she walks into the press room looking very glamorous in her... um, I guess you call them uh, honeymoon or wedding clothes. Uh, that distinctive zebra coat and uh, and hat, uh, and then um. But then, as you go through the film, she's uh, going down into a much more uh, simple outfit, and uh, it's just that um that that simple the visual gesture of um the new identity she takes on uh, that you wouldn't uh, do uh, so effectively these days because of how dress has changed.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, I was actually reading here just about the um so back then they didn't have the multi-track sound recording that obviously is so heavily employed today and people even use at home, etc., and when they're recording various things. Um, so he had the laborious task, the sound mixer on the set, had to turn the overhead microphones on and off required for the scene as many as many as 35 times. Gosh. What a what a task that was.
0: Well, that's why in uh, animated films, or quite often, they have the actors. Even if they're having a dialogue scene, they'll be in separate booths, and they may even record the track completely separately, just so you don't have um, the others.
1: Oversp- <gasps> <laughs> the overspill. The overshare. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: Um, yeah. So like Hawks had done screwball comedies before with like Bringing Up Baby, which I would like to see. Actually, I found somewhere that's quite easy to watch that, so I might give that a watch in the next couple of weeks. Uh, but so he offered some straight characters to kind of balance out the, the screwball comedy element. And obviously um, Cary Grant was having a lot of fun in this picture, so he did do a lot of um, ad-libbing. And apparently this made it hard for the other the crew on the set because they didn't quite ever know – which way the cast was going to particularly maybe move, or which line they were going to say. So I guess as the cinematographer and as that poor sound engineer, it must have been a very frustrating shoot as well as a fun one.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: Um, so always this film had really good um, good box office, and it had a, a really good reception from from the from the audience. I suppose at the time as well, like. Roslyn Russell's character Hildy she was quite you know she was sort of really in a man's world and and kind of doing so well in a man's world not that there weren't other female reporters but I think at the time they were kind of booked out on a lot more fluff pieces and she was covering sort of hard-hitting stories and you know she was keeping up with the guys.
0: You see it up until fairly recently in films that there are any time you see a woman involved in a professional role it's often in quite a limited array of fields uh so we have in this one uh she's a journalist uh when we go later to north by northwest the leading lady in that one is a an industrial designer and it's kind of like those uh, apart from a a nurse or a librarian it's kind of like the only though that four or five selection of professions that you can really go with and i guess uh journalism has the uh, perception of being like really independent so it Mm. uh, kind of suited the character's needs
1: yeah, because in the Doris Day double, we did her character in um, the Pillow Talk. Yeah, yeah, she was a designer or an interior designer. So I guess there were certain sort of occupations that women were starting to get into and do very well. And I suppose it's the whole gender thing of, um, you know, Rosalind Russell's character wanting to go off and, and have a family. And I guess that was the sort of period of time where, Men and, men and women, their gender roles were being reassessed and women realised that they wanted to work as well as have the family. Not all, but some, you know.
0: Yeah, it's, but then the it's also um, not only is she working equally, but she's in this role also hated or at least thinking she hates her job in the same way as a man does because not only is she trying to get out of it, but... Uh, did you actually know that there was a another remake of this made a, later in the seventies, and her role again uh, was made because w- in, the, in the play her, Rosalind's uh, role was or uh, was male, uh, yeah. changed to uh, female in *His Girl Friday*, and in this version of the seventies with uh, Jacqueline and Walter Mather, um, her role had become ma- male again. So it's not just a, a gendered role, but also that kind of uh, whether or not you're kind of that. Um, adrenaline-seeking beasts that okay yeah. whether and you think you want to you think you want to have domestic bliss but do you really
1: oh okay that'll be mm. interesting to see and i need to watch switching channels again too and i any excuse to watch anything with christopher even it's fine with me so um i'll actually try and check out both of those things yeah i did realize that they when we were researching this, that they did change the role. And it did work well with a woman in this film, especially opposite Cary Grant. But it'll be interesting to see it with the two, the two males um, and also the play. We could even suggest that to our local theatre company. That might be a good one if they could possibly do something like that.
0: Well, it's funny, um, His Girl Friday, um, uh, they actually uh, didn't renew the copyright of the film in its time. and oh, right. So even though the play, original play, is still a copyright right. of the film, is you, up for grabs.
1: Yeah, you mentioned that before we started recording, which is which is really interesting. We, so, we
0: could do our own version of when they re-recorded Psycho take yeah.
1: for Take. <laughs> <laughs> that could be an interesting project. Although I guess um, being a Psycho fan, I came out of the uh, cinema when I first saw it thinking, uh, "Why did you bother?" sort of thing. But uh, yeah.
0: uh, as in with the Take for Take remake, not not Psycho. Yeah,
1: yeah. why did he he bother? Because there was an original book, and he perhaps could have based is psycho film on the book, which is what I was hoping to see.
0: There is actually a, a lot of aesthetic experimentation interest regarding that film, but we should probably say that for when we do an episode about psycho. we do about a psycho. long
1: psycho episode with all, all its sequels. Um, let's go North by Northwest now. Uh, 1959, it's classified as an American spy thriller film, but with lots of comedy and hijinks in it as well, produced and directed by Sir Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, starring Cary Grant, of course. This was the last film he did with Hitchcock.
0: I think so. I think To Catch a Thief was, what, a year or something earlier?
1: I think Catch a Thief was 1956. Um, Yeah, he did To Catch a Thief. I think he did the one with Doris Day, um, The Man Who Knew Too Much. Was it The Man Who Knew Too Much or something like that? Then he did Vertigo. And remember, Vertigo had very mixed... Reviews. Um, not
0: a hit, but not a flop.
1: Not a hit, not a flop. But also, to do with maybe Kim and James being a lot of di- a, a, a big age difference. And we have that again in this film, but it doesn't seem to matter so much.
0: Well, to be frank, Cary Grant age better.
1: Yeah. I guess. <laughs> um, yes. And yeah, I see what they're saying about that now. Um, B- but Vertigo is an amazingly beautiful film. And I guess after that, he was ready for a change of play- pace. And Ernest Lehman. Who had written a lot of other very famous films, you know, things like I believe West Side Story, Sabrina, you know, a great back catalogue of films that he has as well that he participated in. He wanted to write the Hitchcock film, the Hitchcock picture to end all Hitchcock pictures, and in a ways, I guess, and unless um, Psycho hadn't have done what it did, all I the guess, birds, yeah, all the birds. I guess you could kind of argue that uh, North by Northwest essentially is is, is a tale of, I guess you could say, mistaken identity. Cary Grant's character, Roger, is mistaken for a spy. Um, You know, there's machinations from the people that are trying to capture his side, from the people that put him in that position, but it's sort of like he was the wrong man to be in that position because he decided to take it upon himself to find out exactly what was going, and then when his character was sort of quote-unquote involved in a crime... He wanted to go out and clear his name, which meant he got even more involved in it.
0: I think most people would run away and hide.
1: Yeah, exactly. But he was, yep, I'm going to the train station, I'm gonna go there and and meet up with this person I'm supposed to be, etc. 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 So it all gets unraveled in sort of layers as you watch the movie. Don't really know why he's been kidnapped at the start of the movie. You know, Eva Marie Saint's character, who's absolute blonde bombshell in this film, very different to how she was in On the Waterfront.
0: Mm, Um, Extremely.
1: Yeah, apparently they wanted um, Sid Charisse or someone a bit more, quote-unquote, glamorous for the role, but Alfred Hitchcock fought to have her in it, and, you know, she was great in the role. So, you know, another sort of... Everyone has a type, I suppose, and she was definitely Sir Alfred's type, would you say?
0: Not as much as Grace Kelly, but definitely up there.
1: (laughs) Um, Yes, she was definitely um, his type of actress that he liked to have in his films, so she did a great job with it. And despite there being quite a large age gap between her and Carrie, they still worked well as, you know, a couple. We had uh, James Mason and a young Martin Landau who went on to have a very long career in film and television as well. So a really interesting cast and the film goes from one place to another. So we're in Midtown Manhattan, we're at the UN headquarters, we're in Chicago, we're out in the Illinois um, Illinois fields with um, in the crops and then we end up at the climactic sequence at Mount Rushmore.
0: Yes, and funnily enough, they didn't let him have a scene of Cary Grant hiding up Abraham Lincoln's nose.
1: <laughs> Wasn't that... Um, that was one of the original titles of the film, The Man in Lincoln's Nose or something, wasn't it?
0: Possibly, I can't remember. Um, Actually, there, I think, was it from this film or uh, another one of about the, that same period with Grant that uh, didn't end up getting filmed, but which would, would have been great. He actually wanted Grant to um, head over to Detroit, which was at that time at its peak as yeah. America's... Uh, auto manufacturer and so he's having a conversation with someone and in the background a, a whole car gets assembled that would have been great
1: yeah yeah actually i mean the film was quite trailblazing even the start um of the film where you just have the rumble of course the great bernard herman who was responsible for so many masterpieces of film scores um, starts off you hear the rumbling in the background of his score beginning and even that title sequence that was designed by Sol Bass he actually did the title what sequence. what a great
0: name yeah
1: Sol Bass yeah who he did the title sequence for psycho obviously the very famous title sequence for that and he also did a lot of storyboarding for psycho including the famous shower scene so that was the first time that they had used titles in that way sort of moving across the screen like that but everything about this film is just feels like a roller coaster even from the start when the music starts off and you just hear the music and then and then you start and it's such a bustling film that goes from one thing to another. You know, everything moves constantly.
0: Yeah, well, it has to start off at a very... Well, really, it has to be because you realise that uh, Grant's character already lives at such a high pace because already even just rushing to lunch, he's uh, literally dragging his secretary with him out of the building um, Mm. to dictate uh, a a note to his mother just on the way back to his own lunch, not just happening within the office, so you have it happening on the fly. But at the same time, it's also... um, it also helps to build up that contrast way later in the plain crop dusting scene because so that's when really the 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 pace really sort of stops yes. like it, he's chasing he's chasing away up until the train scene the with even Marie it then becomes sort of a medium simmer yeah then in the crop dusting scene it you sort of uh, go really wide out, you have that slow bus moving, you sort of have a talk with talk with the farmer man just quietly and then uh, yeah, you get got ready Yeah, quite the next anxious storm.
1: watching that because he's standing in the middle of the field on a desolated road and even though there's a bus route and a, obviously an automobile route that goes up and down then it connects towns or whatever, there was bustle, bustle, bustle and then he's just in the middle of this cornfield supposedly hoping to meet up with this person he's chasing and the cars are going by and you can hear the plane in the background and it's like... So Alfred Hitchcock did, always did a fantastic job of helping to put you in the character's shoes, so to speak.
0: Well, he was determined for that attempted assassination on him sort of in the in the hiding out in the desert area to not fall into the cliché, because at that time the cliché would have been for a few hoodlums in a, to come combine a car with machine guns, kind of like what you saw in The Godfather. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah. So to get out of that cliché, you'd um, have, I guess, he thought of a plane. Um, interestingly, have you seen From Russia With Love?
1: I haven't. No,
0: no, Okay, well, there's that famous scene where Sean Connery is like running away with a suitcase while two men in a helicopter are trying to shoot an I attack him. I did read that
1: there was some sort of yeah. um,
0: Hitchcock thought that he must do, that he was responsible for that new cliche in movies to come from the crop dusting scene. <laughs> it, it's kind of like the Maltese and Italians rivaling each other on cooking.
1: Yes, yes, I think I think so, um, and then of course as we go forward from that part of in the middle of the film or sort of getting, getting into the second part of the film, uh, it's interesting because then Cary Grant's character becomes Roger, sort of takes on the persona. He's, he's brought into the fold and explained exactly how he fits into everything. And, uh, and then it sort of in the third act, it ramps up again because now he's got the knowledge of what's actually going on but he's got this relationship with this woman who he thought was against him and then finds out is actually technically on their side now that he's on their side. So I thought, um, yeah, and even just the way the film finishes off with this highly, highly dramatic scene um, on the face of Mount Rushmore and for those people maybe here in Australia that aren't too familiar with that, that's the massive monument in South Dakota depicting the president's faces on the on the. You know, it's a massive massive piece of sculpture, actually, but um, it's on a mountain, so hence the name Mount Rushmore. But um, the characters in this film are sort of chased to the top of Mount Rushmore where the faces are actually carved on and end up climbing down the faces, which was all done in an indoor set. But still, I think for the time it looked yeah. pretty good. Well, they
0: weren't going to let Cary Grant put his feet on no. the actual faces. Yeah,
1: no. Um, but, I mean, actually in this film, you know, he there was a lot of green screen stuff because in the crop dusting scene, you go from the real crop duster in the field to Cary Grant, like falling on the ground, obviously in a studio. And yeah, then...
0: those, I, I keep thinking that those are uh, corn, um, those corner stems uh, when he's fallen down on the ground. They look exactly like the ones from the Wizard of Oz.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there were a lot of indoor sets that were built. So obviously they did do principal photography and, um, you know, um, you know, on-site photography in the various places they went, so actually at the UN. But then they had to recreate in the studio all these massive set pieces to replicate the indoor area of the UN, the indoor area of certain hotels, um, and, of course, Mount Rushmore itself, which was just a massive. So what an honour it would have been to work on this film as a set designer and a set builder to have to build the face of Mount, you know, these faces of, partial faces of Mount Rushmore.
0: certainly the golden time to be a modeler.
1: Yeah, definitely. And that was, you know, in the day. Now, of course, that would all be done primarily by CGI with maybe some small actual physical props that they would climb on with the CGI in the background, which I don't think is nearly as interesting. So, it yeah, climactically finishes off there. He loves her. He wants to save her. And then, of course, you know, we go harken back to an earlier scene when they shared a bedroom on a train. They're now Mr. and Mrs. And, of course, Hitchcock decided to end off very cheekily with the great phallic symbol of the train going through the tunnel.
0: Yes. uh, (laughs) You and about 20 years later, Monty Python would then uh, create a skit where a couple is about to embrace and then they began and they basically show every movie cliche of how to hide a uh, <laughs> sex scene whether it's a train going into a tunnel fireworks a rocket flying up <laughs> you yeah, know once once something you do becomes used in monty python you know we, it's the become top part top of top. the mainstream consciousness and you need to find another uh, idea
1: yes so uh again the film was incredibly well received and i think you know, after Vertigo had had sort of mixed—I think more from the crowd. I mean, Vertigo is now looked at as, I guess, a classic among films, film critics. Um, I—I'm not that into Vertigo. I—I I know that it's a beautiful film. It's just not really for me. North by Northwest is much more my cup of tea.
0: Oh, I love both.
1: You like both, yeah. I, I think it's more I'm just coming at it from a story point of view and I think for me the story in Vertigo wasn't as interesting to me as, say, what was going on in North by Northwest.
0: Yeah, well, the theme music alone uh, could sell anyone. Uh, yeah. A couple yeah. of times I've actually been driving on a freeway and ha- that song has happened to play on the radio and I feel like, okay, suddenly fate's going to make one of my tyres burst yeah. or something and while <laughs> that theme's playing I'm going to be struggling with the wheel. Um.
1: Yeah, it's just, uh, you know... And I think even Marie Saint did a good job. And all of the other... James Mason was really good in the film. Martin Landau was as well, uh, the actor that played the professor. You know, everyone suited their roles really well and the female supports in the film were equally as good too. And just lots of different locations, lots of sort of techni- hard technical stuff that Alfred Hitchcock, you know, was sort of at the forefront using that green s- screen technology, even when Carrie Grant's character is driving under the influence you know yes some of it was the green screen but he did a pretty good job merging the two sorts of footage the real footage and the the green screen footage together
0: yeah and the sort of the pacing makes you forgive it it's the same thing uh, years later when he's shooting Marnie and uh, there's a part where a tippy hedron's character uh, falls off the horse who unfortunately uh, braces it's back and it's sort of that uh, lots mm. of fast intercutting of angles uh, but you sort of uh, forgive any um artificiality of the backdrop because of the um the swiftness of movement
1: yeah and obviously with his last film coming out in 1976 he wasn't really around to see how some of the techniques that he helped to pioneer would play out in more modern filmmaking so there's a lot to thank him for you know I think some of the techniques he used um you would know a lot more about sort of I mean, and he was helped by a lot of people. He had great cinematographers, he had great storybook. but it always, he was such a great leader. Yes, he was a pain in the butt, but he knew what he wanted. I think a lot of modern directors now, there's too many endings shot, there's too many changes in the middle of a shoot, there's too many fallouts with actors. You know, it's just like, you know, as he said, what, all actors are cattle, and that would be famously said.
0: Well, he, effectively, he... Um, <laughs> uh I think uh, that was something he uh, was uh, sort of forced into um, saying during an argument, but effectively he uh, just came from a tradition of uh, filmmaking and acting where it was uh, much more to do, much more guided to the script, and uh, you weren't. um, He didn't approve of method acting on set, he didn't approve of. because when you're trying to. Uh, cut uh, different um, scenes uh, that may not necessarily be in the chronological order of the mm-hmm. story. Yeah, uh, to sort of meet the requirements of technology, uh, the actor has to accommodate that uh, because they can't just sort of dive into uh, into character properly each time. And also, it's kind of like the I think uh, Hitchcock saw his role more to do with what was happening with the actor's body and voice on the camera, not was not what was going on in their mi- in their mind.
1: Yeah, definitely. I, yeah, great film. Um, I don't have much, I mean, is it something I would watch every single day? No, it's just but once in a every while. Week,
0: every week maybe. Every
1: week. Um, but I, yeah, I did enjoy this. I hadn't seen this since I was a teenager, this film, and it was good to see it again. It was good to get reacquainted with it. That sort of last batch of films he did in the 1950s leading up to Psycho would probably be the favourite of his career for me. So To Catch a Thief, The Man Who Knew Too Much. Um, I haven't seen The Trouble with Harry. That's more of a comedic sort of piece, isn't it? Yeah,
0: I haven't seen that one either.
1: Yeah, I need to see that one. Actually, a young Jerry Mathers is in that who was from Leave It to Beaver. So I'm curious to see it. But leading up to Psycho, I know some of the films he did after Psycho, some people liked them, some people didn't. Um, You know, Marnie was a bit hit and miss, Torn Curtain. But still, it just, he has such an amazing body of work. I think it would be good to go into some of his British films or some of his very early, you know, The Saboteur and.
0: Yeah, well, I I love uh, The Lady Vanishes. The Lady
1: Vanishes, yeah. And he just has, but you're right, he came from an era where he was the leader. This is the script we've got and we're going to work with it. And I think the problem I have with a lot of modern you know, filmmaking, I've, you know, referenced a horror franchise that uh, that I've followed since I was a kid and the latest instalment of it just came out. There's too much oh, what is the what does the audience want to see? What is what do they think about this? We're gonna go back and reshoot the ending. We're gonna okay, I can see that up to a certain point, you know, having some focus groups, but how about being confident in you know what you're making in the belief that you have the best script and that the audience will go along with you, and that's how they used to make films, and they don't make them that way anymore.
0: I mean, Hitchcock did um, take serious use of studio audiences and paid attention mm. to the uh, what the uh, they said in terms of um, how, on the little uh, cars they filled and, and everything, but he had uh, his own uh, mind of what needed to be accomplished. Yeah, and he was a. Uh, I think I think that if he'd lived 100 years earlier, he'd have been very successful as the head of a music hall because he mm. just knew exactly how an audience worked. Uh, he knew when um, they were going to be ready to um, to finish and um, he knew when the bladder was likely to become a problem for um, uh, focusing on yeah, the that, film. That's true, that, yeah, that's true. That's a sentiment I can relate with. Yeah,
1: no, that's true. And I, it is good to listen to your audience and I 100% agree with that. But I think he always went in with such a clear idea of where he wanted to start where he wanted to finish and if the project wasn't working he could step away from it because there was another movie the wreck of the merry deer which did eventually get made into a movie about that old uh, about the ship and he was like I just he and his collaborators were like we just can't we can't come up with an idea and then they went on to do north by northwest so he also knew when to walk away from a project when it wasn't going his way you know sort of thing
0: whereas also well's problem was that he <laughs> if he got into a project he'd never let it go and he'd uh, and if it meant um doing bit parts in a bad film <laughs> or um uh, or getting it into an awkward business arrangement with the Shah of iran's brother-in-law yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, i'm not making that up um it, in order to finance a project of his he'd do it yes um, stu- uh, hitchcock was a, a, a he approached his work more like a, an accountant approaching their books.
1: Yeah, he was a bit more judicious in what he, he wanted to take on. And remember, there was a lot of blowback when he was, um, again, we'll leave it for the longer episode we'll do on this, but when he was shooting Psycho, he was, you know, it was it was low budget for him. He was doing it in black and white. Everyone was like, what in the heck are you making here? Maybe we'll cut this down for a TV show episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents or something. But he knew, he knew what he wanted to do with that film and, Gee, he was rewarded for it. So, um,
0: yeah, talk about a high, uh, high dividend yield on your investment.
1: Oh, well, that started um, the modern you know horror films we have today have to, even though they're not even in the same league as that, we, they have to thank you know that was one of, one of the precursors and then with some other horror films at that time too. So anyway, been an enjoying discussion. We might just pop you on hold for a second because we haven't actually established what we're doing next.:
0: I was thinking that too. All yeah. right, uh, let's see if this pause button works.:
1: Okay, we'll be back with you shortly. And we're back. Sorry about that brief interruption. We actually hadn't discussed what we were doing next, but we have decided this one will be my choice because this person is just known for her off-screen antics as well. Uh, Joan like Crawford. Me. Yeah. <laughs> I think we've all got a few off-screen antics when we want to. Joan Crawford, who is a much revered yet maybe maligned uh character in classic Hollywood. We're gonna do two of her films sort of in the middle to late part of her career not quite whatever happened to Baby Jane late, but um, sort of getting into the latter stages of her career. So we're doing Mildred Pierce 1945, which she won an Academy Award for, and then sort of kind of like a slash horror, film noir, thriller, thing she did with Jack Palance, 1952, Sudden Fear. So we thought those two might be one of her really well-known films and one maybe not so well-known. So join us for our Joan Crawford Special. I was going to say Joan Collins. I'm like, maybe not.
0: Yeah, You've seen one, Joan. You've seen
1: Um, Matt, can you just tell everyone about our social media and we'll bid you adieu.
0: Yeah, no worries. As usual, you can uh, catch up with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our channel is distributed on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. So wherever you get the opportunity to give us a good review, we appreciate it. It helps get us in front of more people.
1: It certainly does. I've learned those
0: lines from many podcasters down the track.
1: It it does. And, we, uh, you know, we hate, I'm not into sort of, but that's just the way you have to do it, isn't it? It's just the way it's done. You've got to ask out there. Ask out there, definitely.
0: Yes. So shame on you for making us ask you
1: to
0: to do all those things, but we hope it motivates you.
1: Definitely. But in the meantime, as always, I'm Rachel. I'm Matthew. And we're watching good movies. Thank you and have a good one.